That was November 3rd, 2013. I was skinnier then, I see. Nothing I can do about that. But uh, you can see we weren't painted. We had the cross. We didn't have anything. It was uh, barely functional that day, but we somehow got through it. Um, so I always knew that as we started into our seventh year, um, and interestingly, this was November 3rd, because I, you know, seven, there's seven days in the week. So it's the same day of the week as well. Um, I always knew I was going to preach this today. But a funny thing happened on the way between 2013 and 2019, and that's the sermon changed. And the sermon changed into a series because I started to write down. Now, the Jesus Razor was kind of my personal testimony a little bit. I was talking about the things that led up to this idea of Spirit Chapel. So it was kind of a testimony wrapped in theology kind of thing. And I thought, you know, that's kind of an interesting thing for us to hand out to people to try and figure out what is the Spirit Chapel thing all about, right? And so I thought, well, I'll put it together, a little booklet, maybe a 30-page booklet. We'll hand it out to new people that come in and want to know. It'd be a nice little handout. But when I started to write the book, The Jesus Razor, I realized I was missing stuff. There was stuff that I should have that I didn't. And so I started adding it before very long. It expanded. So now what we have is the kind of new and improved Jesus Razor. Uh, and it actually is going to encompass seven weeks in total. Uh, although, for those of you who are worried, not all today. And, and we already went through the first one. As a matter of fact, we already, I already did this because so, on May 5th, some of you were here. On May 5th, I preached a sermon in the, in the Armor of God series, and I actually read chapter one of the Jesus Razor book. Some of you were here for that, and I don't want to do that again today. I actually want to pick the story up there and move on, right? Because all these things was kind of things that happened in my life that led me down the path that eventually ended up at Spirit Chapel. But I hope by watching my kind of meandering walk, some of you may... Uh, have renewed faith that, well, I can't be that bad. Look how long it took the pastor to get on path. You know, so maybe, maybe it'll be helpful in that way. So anyway, I want to pick up with week two or chapter two, but before I get there, for those of you who weren't here on May 5th, or maybe those of you who weren't paying attention on May 5th and forgotten what it was all about, let me tell you uh, the high points of that, uh, that story. It's told a story about when I was 13 months old and I was in McKeesport Hospital and I was literally dying. I had pneumonia in both lungs. They didn't know why. They couldn't stop it. I kept getting worse. There was nothing they could do. Uh, and so my mother, who was a nurse, uh, asked the head physician who was in charge of my case, what's his chances? And uh, he said, to tell you the truth, um, not good. In fact, I'm leaving right now. I'm coming in the morning for my rounds. I don't expect to see your son here when I come. So whatever you need to do to say goodbye to your son, go ahead and do it tonight because he won't be here tomorrow morning. And then he checked out. So medical science literally checked out. And uh, my mom was a new Christian at the time. She'd only been saved for a couple months. And what do you do with that? Well, she knows medicine's not the answer. So she starts turning to this God she barely knew. And she's praying, and she doesn't have the depth of experience that some of us maybe have. Some of us who grew up in the church, some of us who went to CCD class, some of us who went to vacation Bible school, whatever. She didn't have any of that. She grew up in a non-believing house. And so she really didn't know how to pray. She just knew her only chance here was God. And so she starts praying and she gets this sense in her spirit that God is asking her to do something she's never heard of before. It was just, I want you to give your child to me. She doesn't even know what that means. Now, of course, some of us, you know, we know the story of Isaac and Abraham and the Zechariah. We know these stories, but she had no idea what this was all about. And so she's trying to do it, but she's having a hard time, as you can imagine, because there's no promise at all there'll be any healing. And the doctor just said there wouldn't be a healing. And so she struggles with this, and she says, I don't even know how to pray this prayer. God sent somebody into the room. He was a pastor she'd never met. He was only there visiting somebody else. He heard about this. And so he stopped in 
to see her. And he walked in a room, and this is the first thing he says to her, can I pray with you? And here she is struggling, trying to figure out how to pray this prayer, right? And so she says, yeah, I have a prayer I need to pray. I don't know how to pray it. And she tells him, and he like takes it like it was the most normal request for a mother in the world to ask, I need to give my child up to God, whether he heals him or not. So they said this prayer. And that was the prayer, the prayer of sacrifice and the, and the prayer of commitment and just handing away, you know, this dedication, do what you want with him, whatever you want to do with his life. Even if you want to take it, go ahead and do that. It's all yours. And then God answered through scripture. Because as soon as they finished that prayer, God spoke to the pastor to start quoting Psalm 91, which I don't know how many of us could actually quote scripture like that. God bless Presbyterian ministers who did this study. And he starts quoting over me Psalm 91. And for those of you who know Psalm 91, it is a song of protection and healing. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall dwell under the shadow of the Almighty. It's this great psalm that talks about the healing and protection. And my mother, when she heard that, she didn't even know it was Psalm 91. She just thought it was this guy speaking God, you know. And so she hears it. She thought, he's going to be healed. She's, she, she knew it. He's going to be healed. And I was. In the morning, they took the oxygen tent off me, and I went home a couple of days later. All right, so that's the story, kind of the high points of my life up to this point. You know, when I'm 13 months old, I'm in McKeesport Hospital, I'm dying. I'm told this since the moment they can speak to me and I can understand English. That is an awful lot to lay on a three-year-old, right? What do you do with that? I mean, think about that for a moment. I am, I'm two years old, you know, by the time they're talking to me, I'm like probably four, and my testimony literally is this, I should be dead right now, but I'm alive. That's a great testimony, but it's a hard thing for a three-and-a-half-year-old to handle, wouldn't you think? It's like, wow, that's, that's pretty heavy, you know? That, that this is your testimony. What are you going to do with that? And so as I'm starting to write the, you know, getting down and writing the Spirit Chapel's, you know, story, the Jesus Raises story, I realized this is chapter one. God chooses you and heals you miraculously. And that was cool, but then I turned to page one of chapter two. I'm like, what now? Where do you go from there? Now, before I tell you where I go from there, let me ask you guys a question. Where do you go from there? Because some of you have this same testimony. Some of you could say with me right now, I should be dead right now, but I'm alive. So what do you do with that if that's your story? It's more your stories than, than you think because I don't know if you've ever heard this or not, but Jesus saves. Have you heard that? And of course, we always think, well, yeah, that means later when we're, when we're dead, we go to heaven and, and, and he saves us so we don't go to hell. Yes, he saves us spiritually. That's, that does mean that. But that's not all it means. It also means that he saves us physically. Because for a lot of us, if he didn't save us physically, we'd never get to the spiritual part. We'd be dead, right? So Jesus actually does save our lives, not just physically, but uh, not just spiritually, but also physically. Maybe you have a testimony. My family has that testimony. I was thinking about this as I was kind of putting this together. My family, you know, they're all here right now. Victoria, Stas, Emily, and me. We should all be dead right now. We should, because we all share one thing. It's really weird because we come from like different cultures, different countries, three different languages spoken in my house, not counting Yinzer, you know? And, and yet we all have this very similar experience that we should all be dead, but are alive because every one of our mothers, every one of them, when they found out they were pregnant with us, they were advised to abort the baby, every one of them. Three of them were advised for medical reasons. Mother's life was in danger, three of them. One of them actually made the appointment with the abortionist, met him, 
have the procedure, to have the procedure done. He had done hundreds of them. But for some reason, he said, I'm not going to do this one. And may have some kind of lame excuse as to why. We should all be dead right now. But we're alive. And some of you have that same testimony. You should be dead right now. But you're alive. That's your chapter one. What's your chapter two look like? What next? Does it make you curious? Why did God save you? Have you ever thought about that? Why am I alive? Is there a purpose in this? Did he have a reason for saving my life? What did you do next? I'm only asking you because I got to tell you something. Um, what I did next was nothing at all. I mean, this is, this is the tragic story of my chapter two. My life just goes back to normal. I go from this McKeesport miracle to statistically irrelevant. That's what happens in chapter two. I basically just grew up as a Pittsburgh kid, doing everything every other Pittsburgh kid did. And I didn't really change anything at all in my life. And I wonder why. And I look back on that, I'm like, man, how could I have not at least been curious to ask the question, God, you saved my life, why? Why didn't he even ask? Or how about this? My dad was a preacher. How about him sitting down and having a talk with me? Hey, when God saves your life, here's what you should do next. I didn't have that talk. My father was a good father. He sat down, we had talks. He gave me the sex talk. Can I say that with the youth here? He did. I was in third grade. I don't know how much I needed it then, you know, but, but that's okay because the real reason I didn't need it was I had two older brothers. My oldest one gave me the sex talk when I was in second grade. Uh, I thought he was messing with me. I, didn't th I think he made it a whole thing up, so I didn't believe him. So maybe when my dad told me, I thought, well, maybe Tim was right, you know, but I had that talk with my dad, but he never said, oh, by the way, son, if God steps in miraculously and saves your life, here's what you should do next. I didn't have that talk with anybody. And I never really sat down and tried to figure out why. That's kind of really bizarre. But I think part of it has to do with the fact that we weren't just Christians. We were Presbyterians. And there's one thing Presbyterians know is how to trust the plan. And if, if you didn't grow up Presbyterian, if you're Methodist or something, let me explain to you the plan. The plan is that God has a plan for each and every one of your life. And everything is going according to plan. Don't worry. No matter how weird things are getting, everything's going according to plan. That's, you know, people tell you. Trust in God's plan. But what if I don't like God's plan? You know, what if, what if it uh, doesn't seem to be where I want to go at all? Well, that's okay, because we have three Bible verses to give you to take away all your doubts. First one's in Isaiah. Boy, we know this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts, and my ways above your ways. In other words, God's just smarter than you. If things aren't going the way you want, it's okay. He's got it all under control. Trust the plan. But what if his plan for me is not good? You know, what if his plan for me is really bad stuff? That's okay. We got another verse for you. It's in Jeremiah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Now, never mind this verse actually wasn't given to us. It was given to the Israelites coming back from captivity. Let's just say that that was given to us, right? Because that's how it was taught to me. I know my plans for you, says God. Plans to prosper you. Well, that's okay. If God has plans to prosper me, I... I can go through a little bit of trouble. And then they can pull out the final one. The final one's in Romans because it's New Testament ties everything together. We know that all things, all things God works for the good of those, watch this, who have been called according to his purpose. Hey, I was called. How can, how can you not say I was called according to God's purpose? He saved my life. So basically just trust the plan. So knowing that there's a plan out there, waiting for the plan to be revealed to me, I just went back and lived my life. If God wants me, he'll let me know. 
When God wants me to finally step in and do whatever it is he wants me to step in, I, I, I'll be here. And meanwhile, yeah, I have life to live. I'm going to just go ahead and live it like everybody else around me. I'm going to seize the American dream. Because honestly, uh, the truth of the matter is, if I'm going to be really honest, most of my ideas of how to live didn't come from the Bible anyway. I'm with, uh, I'm with Audrey Hepburn on this. Everything I learned, I learned from movies. Probably won't surprise some of you who have been coming here for a while. Everything I learned, I learned from movies or stories. I read a lot. So movies and stories, that like taught me everything. Taught me how I needed to be as a man, you know, bravery, courage, friendship, romance. Everything was in a movie somewhere, you know. And I would always say, well, that's like that movie. And I was always quoting movie lines. Some of you may be similar, you know. And in movies and in literature, there's a true, I'm going to spend a lot of time on literature, for those of you who don't want to take a literature, lit, lit ed class today, but there's a word in literature that's used, and actually it's misused today, but it's called trope. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Now, it has a lot of meanings, but the way it usually means today, if you ever heard the word trope, and you can actually Google this, go on YouTube, you'll see a million videos on this. Trope is a commonly recurring literary and rhetorical device or cliche in creative works. So those things show up in all kinds of movies and all kinds of stories. And you know, as soon as you see it, I know what's going to happen, right? Like the lovable rogue that becomes the hero of the story. Like uh, Captain Jack Sparrow in you know, the, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies or Han Solo in Star Wars. That's a trope. It shows up in a lot of movies. And as soon as you saw Jack Sparrow, you know he wasn't going to be a bad guy because you knew. You could feel that trope. Well, there's a trope that plays out here very nicely for me. Because I'm like trying to figure out what's gonna go on with my life. And I realize, well, the movies teach me these things. And so there's this one trope that's called the chosen one. Now, you might think, well, that's weird. You thought you were the chosen one. Listen, let me tell you something. Especially now I've been a pastor for a while. And you may not know this, but everybody's the hero of their own story. I talk to a lot of people, you know, we do counseling, we counsel men and women, and everybody tells the same story, but they're the hero of it. You're the hero of your own story. I'm no different. The only reason I had a trope, I actually knew the arc that my character was going to go on because I knew the chosen one story. You've seen it. Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, Neo in The Matrix. There's a good one. My favorite, Poe in Kung Fu Panda, right? Uh, Harry Potter and all the Harry Potter books. They're always the same, right? They're always the same. Somebody, the, the thing about the chosen one, he's always plucked out of obscurity. Yeah, I was in McKee Sport. That was obscure, right? So he's plucked out of obscurity, and he's usually against his will, but there's some power greater than him that's going to lead him into his path because he's got the destiny to do something. You know, it might be blowing up the death store. It might be saving a village. Whatever it is, there's some destiny you have. I didn't know what my destiny was, but I figured God has chosen me. I'm the chosen one. And so now I just simply have to follow that path, and it'll all come clear eventually because, you know, what always happens next in the chosen one. And we know what happens next. The chosen one gets taken out, usually by a wizard, someplace where he's trained to do whatever he needs to do to train. And the training's weird, wax on, wax off, or whatever, but it's always just the training he needs in order to do his duty as the chosen one. That's, that's what it is. And so all you have to do is wait for the training to start. And one of my favorite, of course, was in Kung Fu Panda when, uh, he had to train him on that, and he was like always hungry, so you... Yeah, it just might be weird, 
but the wizard's going to come and teach you everything you need to know. So basically, the rest of my life, I'm just waiting for my wizard to show up. Now, I'm not stupid. I knew it wasn't actually a wizard. Right? I didn't expect Gandalf to show up. But I thought, you know, when God needs me to know what I need to know, he'll send me a mentor. He'll pull me out and say, this is what you need to know. And I'd be taught whatever I need to know. And then I'd be able to step into my destiny as the chosen one. And so I waited my whole life. And the wizard never showed up. Because, and this is going to probably surprise you, it surprised me. It turns out, movies aren't real. Who knew? Tough thing to base your life on to find out that they're not real. In fact, let me put it this way. It turns out that tropes aren't truth. So that was the problem. See, I had more faith in tropes because they show up in everywhere. They, they show up in every language, language, every culture. Tropes are universal to men, mankind and men and women. It's universal. How can they not be true? They had to have some truth somewhere. And it turns out that tropes aren't truth. You know what tropes are like? If you had the truth, which is the sun source, like literally the sun, trope is like a mirror that's thrown on the ground and broken in a million pieces. Each piece reflects some of the truth, but not all of it. In fact, there's actually a word called refraction because it's not even a clean reflection. So it's not the truth, but it has a little piece of the truth in it. And that's what you pick up. And that's why if you read a story that appeals to you and, and resonates to you, it's, it's touching into a deeper truth, but it's not the truth by itself. This is actually kind of good news because if tropes aren't truth, but they all come from truth, all I needed to do was find the truth and I'd be set. Now, this is very late in my life by now. It's gone off the rails several times, but I'm thinking I would like to know the truth. Where's the truth? Where do all these tropes come from? Well, you're sitting in a church. So you know what my answer is. They all come from the Bible. But here's what I need you to know. I didn't come to that my own. I actually read that, and it was, it was written by a very, very well-known, famous literary professor, an expert on literature. And he was an atheist when he wrote it. An atheist wrote that. All truth comes from the Bible. Now, he didn't come on that by himself either. He had a very, very good friend. This guy was a professor at Oxford. He had a very, very good friend who's a professor at Oxford. And these two literally sat up all night arguing about this. Because they both recognized these tropes show up all across literature, all across countries and things. And they're arguing about where they come from. Because they both realized if you could find the source of it, you had the source of truth. And it started in a pub because all English stories start in a pub. They started in a pub and they started arguing until they closed the pub down at 4 a.m., they left. They were still arguing about it. And when this atheist got home, he lied in bed angry at his friend because he knew that he was right. And he didn't want him to be right because he was angry with God. But he realized, I have no choice. That's the truth. And he woke up in the morning and he became a Christian, making him the only person in the history of the world to ever be argued into the kingdom of heaven. I, I don't know of anybody else now, you know both of these guys because the atheist's name is C.S. Lewis. He would go on to become one of the most popular, famous Christian authors of all time. He also wrote this thing called the Chronicles of Narnia, which is something I wrote, read as a kid several times over. His friend that day is a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien. He's a Christian. He wrote a little thing called Lord of the Rings. They argued about this all night and they realized truth has to be the Bible. These are experts in literature. They knew the ancient, they could read it. Tolkien especially was, a, was an expert in languages. He could read it in the ancient Greek, the ancient everything. And they realized everything actually comes from the Bible. The Bible is a source of everything. That's good news. 
because I'm supposed to be the chosen one. That means somewhere in the Bible there's a story that I could look at that's really what I need to find, not the, not the Master Poe and Kung Fu Panda, but the real story. So there are a lot of chosen ones in the Bible. It's like all about God choosing people. But the one that really fits the trope as we know it today has to be the story of David. It's got everything. In fact, every one of these movies I showed, every one of them is ripping off the story of David. Let me show you what he has. First of all, they have an evil king. He actually was a good king, but he turns evil when an evil spirit enters him and turns him evil. This actually literally shows up in Fellowship of the Rings, those of you who've seen the movie. Right? So that's how it starts, the story of David. And so um, the wizard, well, he's not really a wizard in the Bible, right? He's called a priest or a prophet. His name's Samuel. Uh, he knows that the king's gone off the rails. And God comes, and the word of the Lord comes to him. In movies, it's always some kind of big prophecy thing. But it's just the word of the Lord comes to his prophet. And he says this, what are you sitting around moping about this king that went bad? We need to get a new king. And watch what, watch what Samuel says. How can I do that? If this king finds out, he's going to kill me. And God says, well, then we'll do it in secret. Because isn't that always the way that trope goes? Isn't the chosen one always selected in secret, plucked out of obscurity? This is where they're getting it from. And so he goes, he just tells me, he said, I need you to go to this place. It's an obscure place, a little tiny town that no one knows much about. No one cared about it very much. We know that town today, it's this town called Bethlehem. But in that day, it meant nothing to anybody. And so he goes to Bethlehem, he goes to this guy named Jesse. And how perfect is this? Jesse has seven sons. And, they're, and, and they don't know why he's there, because he won't tell anybody. He can't tell anybody. If Saul finds out, he'll kill them all. So he shows up, and they, they, as tradition has it, they, they, they have a feast for this great, important man who shows up at their house. They don't know why, but there he is. So they have a big feast, and as tradition demanded, they brought the children in one at a time and presented them to the man of God. And as the person shows up, the very first son comes in, uh, Samuel looks at him and says, well, this is the guy. And God says, no, it's not him. And look why. Look why he tells him. The Lord said, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Is that always true of the chosen one? They don't look like the chosen one ever, right? But there's something special about them inside. Where do you think they're getting this? This is the story. And so he says, you can't, you can't see it, but it's, it's there. And so, the, so he passes every one of them through. And he says, nope, 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 nope. He says, okay. That's all my sons. He goes, wait a minute, what? I was coming here to, to anoint the next king of Israel and God rejected every one of these. He says, is there anybody else? I'm starting to sound like Cinderella now, right? That little glass slipper didn't fit anybody. Anybody else? Well, there's the runt, you know, that little kid we have. We don't have him here very much because he keeps our sheep. So he kind of smells like sheep and he's a little dirty and greasy. Um, yeah. And so what Samuel says is, well, you need to go get them because we will not sit down and eat until I have met all of your sons. Doesn't tell them why. So they send for him. They bring this 13-year-old kid in. And the Bible's really, really polite here because they say he had a ruddy complexion. Basically, he had pimples, acne-scarred face. I mean, he doesn't have clear right? He's been out in the sheep field. What do you think? He's dirty. There's nothing about him that would say this is the next king of Israel. He's just some 13-year-old kid, pimply-faced. And God says, that's my guy because I see his heart. This is good so far. I like all of this. I mean, I don't know that I had the heart of David, right? Uh, you know, the acne of David either. So I'm okay with this. So all this is good. But now I need to know what happens. What's the chapter two for David? Because I have now found the true story of the chosen one. 
This is what God does with chosen people. What's next? Well, according to all the movies, the next thing is it goes out to training. And actually, the interesting thing is this whole thing ends right here. says that when he anoints him, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon David and stays with him for the rest of his life. That will never be seen again until the New Testament in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon people and leaves. It comes upon David and stays. Okay, so that's good. Okay, good. And then Samuel arose and went to Ramah. I don't know where that is. But if I stop right there at verse 13, I'm thinking, this must be some kind of martial arts center. And he's going to take David with him. He's going to teach him how to fight. Because folks, David's going to have to know how to fight. Israel's surrounded, surrounded by countries that hate him. And they're going to kill him. They need a warrior king. So clearly, we're not where this Ramah is, but, but Samuel's taking them there to teach them how to fight. But actually, Samuel's going there alone. He's, okay, you're the next king. Let you know. He leaves. The wizard doesn't teach David anything. The wizard leaves. He anoints him, goes, oh, now you got the spirit of God, though. Good luck with that. Off he goes. Wherever Ramah is, that's what he does. You know what David does next? David goes to the wilderness alone. There's this word the Bible uses called sanctified. That means set apart. David is being sanctified. He's being pulled out of the world. He's being put in a sheep field with nothing except the Holy Spirit. Now, the Spirit of the Lord is sometimes also said in the Old Testament, the Word of the Lord. You kind of use this interchangeably. The only thing he has with him is the Spirit of the Lord and the Word of the Lord. No phone, no YouTube, no Netflix, no Switch, nothing. He's got nothing there. Doesn't even have, doesn't have a television. He's got nothing. Podcast, nothing. Just the Word of the Lord. And he is there for three years. If I were to describe David's life to you, I would say it's going to be three years of utter boredom interrupted by two moments of sheer terror. That was his life. You can't imagine anything more boring than watching sheep. You watch them eat, you watch them poop. And then when you're all done eating and pooping, you move them to a new grass where you watch it again. That's pretty much being a shepherd. It's the most boring job imaginable. He carves himself a flute, learns how to play the flute. He takes a little layer with him as kind of the, their version of the guitar, you know, learns how to play that. That's it. Oh, he does write things down. We know that because um, he, we have his writings, we call them the Psalms. That's it. For three years, he's apart from everybody. He doesn't get a girlfriend. He doesn't go to the prom. He doesn't get a new horse or a new car. He doesn't get any of the things that the kids around him are getting. He gets set apart. He's going to spend three years with nothing but the word of the Lord. Why? Of all things, wouldn't you teach this guy how to fight? I would. Or teach him how to lead. How about that? Teach him civics. Teach him something. He's going to be the king of Israel. Nope. Do you know what God teaches him? And it takes him three years to learn it. He learns to see the world through God's eyes. That's it. He has one course. See the world through God's eyes. That's it. Takes him three years. Three years later, uh, eventually he will graduate. But first he writes this. And this is, this is how he knows. We know he knows what he's doing. Here's, here's what David says about his training time. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Do you notice the refrain here? Teach me, teach me, teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. I should be dead right now, but I'm alive. 
I wait for you all day. If God speaks to me for five minutes a day, I'll wait. If God speaks to me for five hours a day, I'll wait. I am just waiting for God to teach me his truth. That's what David says. When the Spirit of the Lord came to me, he says, boy, this is the most exciting thing in life. I just need to know more about God and how he sees the world. That's what I need to learn. And that's all David learns, the chosen one. Now, his, um, his needs seem to be greater than that. You think maybe David got picked for a reason? God said no, just his heart. But maybe his reflexes, you know? Maybe when they clean him up, he's good looking. Why does God pick you? God saved your life, did he? Did God save your life? Did he choose you? Has God chosen you? Why? Why did God choose you? What are you offering? You ever think about that? I'm smart. I'm good looking. I'm fast. I'm, I'm agile. I've got reflexes. What is it? I'm clever. What, 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 why did God pick you? See, the reality is he didn't pick you for any of those reasons. He picked you because of your heart. Because God needs nothing from you in order to assure your success. You know what he needs? One thing and one thing only. He needs your attention. If he has your attention, he can teach you anything. If he doesn't, he can teach you nothing. It takes David three years. That seems like a long time. It took Moses 40. It took, it took Joseph 12. Jesus Christ did it in 40 days. He was kind of an ace student, though. It took David three years to learn this. And then he graduates. Kind of a boring graduation, graduation ceremony, though. It's no cap and gown. What happens on his graduation day is he's going out to the sheep field, and his dad says, hey, David, we're not going to go out to the sheep today. Uh, I got something for you I need you to do. I need you to grab some food to take, your brother, to take your brothers who are serving in the army. We are so proud of them. They're doing the real stuff. You're just a punk kid sitting here watching the sheep. But we're going to let you do something to support your brothers who are the real, the real important people in our family. So go there and get them this food. And also, by the way, take 10 chunks of cheese for their commanders. It's basically a bribe. So their commanders treat them better. Oh, you're the people whose family sends me that good cheese. Okay, well, you don't go in the front row. We'll put you in the second row. That's it. Food for the brothers, bribe for the officers. That's his graduation ceremony. David doesn't say, you know, I'm the king of Israel. Dad, I think you can find somebody better to run these cheeses and breads up. Nope. He says, okay. Because he sees the world through God's eyes. I don't think he has any idea, though, what's about to happen. See, we know, only because of history, that within the next 24 hours, David would fight the most famous battle in history and win. I don't care who you are. I don't care what language. I don't care what your religion is. I don't care what country you live in. You have heard of the battle of David versus Goliath. By far, bar none, the most famous battle ever fought. David's about to fight it and win. How? Did God teach him how to fight giants? No, he taught him to pay attention and to see the world through his eyes. So when he shows up on a battlefield, he doesn't see a giant. He sees an inconvenience. And he hears God say, take him out. He says, yes, Lord. And he takes him out. Because God doesn't need him to be skillful. He needs him to pay attention. See, this is the whole thing. If we keep doing what everybody else is doing, we'll end up living the life everyone else is living. And let me tell you something about that. I've done that. I've done it. I'm a statistical perfect American. Married and divorced, 50% of us are. Remarried, 50% of us are. Redivorced, 75% of us are. 75%. 
I went through marriage and divorce, rebound marriage and divorce. Statistically average. You keep doing what everybody else is doing. You're going to live the life everybody else is living. If I could, and the reason why I ask for the youth to be here today, I don't know what your stories are. I don't know if God has selected you and you feel chosen by God, you feel God's hand on your life. I don't know if you feel that way. But if you do, I got to tell you, stop listening to movies and TV and all the books because that's what I did. It didn't work out so well for me. Believe me, two failed marriages and a ruined family, not what you want to see. I'm encouraging you, do what the real one did, the original. Learn how to pay attention to God. Because some, somebody asked me once, they said, uh, you're kind of a little bit hard on yourself here. You didn't really do anything bad. You didn't go off and become a drug addict. You didn't steal. You know, you had a fair to middling, good career, you know, through your life. You, you did all right. You just kind of lived the American dream a little bit. You know, had a car, paid a mortgage, kind of the American dream, right? No, it's not enough. I said, why are you so hard on yourself? I said, well, the reason is because God actually wanted to teach me how to slay giants. I was too busy having fun to learn. Here's the thing, though. I still fought the giants. I just didn't win. See, that's the problem with following the world's way. I just didn't win. If I may say this in the church, giants pretty much kicked my ass. I couldn't beat them. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to pay attention to God. I didn't know who he was. I was waiting for the plan. And all the time I had God saying, no, I, I want you with me. I don't want to join your life. I want you to join mine. I have things I need to teach you, but I need you to pay attention. And I was just too busy to do it. See, I don't know where you are in your life. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you can actually say these words. I should be dead right now, but I'm alive. Well, now what? Would you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you give us a new vision.